Have we reached a tipping point in sports, not just horse racing, where legal betting will mean greater accountability for officials? And how important and or necessary is greater transparency when it comes to officiating? Plus, are there too many tracks in the Mid-Atlantic region, and how can they all survive? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit-bombing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. They turn for home in the Kentucky Derby, and Code of Honor has slipped through down inside to challenge for the lead. Country House on the outside battles on two. War of Will is also there. And down toward the inside, Maximum Security is boxing on two. Improbable down the center of the track. There's one furlong to go. It's Maximum Security digging down deep. Country House continues to close on the outside, but Maximum Security at the peak of perfection in the Kentucky Derby wins by two. Country House was second, Code of Honor was there, and the photo for third with Pesidus. There's been a disqualification. Number seven, Maximum Security disqualified from first for interference. The new order of finish, number 20, Country House first. Number 13, Code of Honor, second. Number 8, Tacitus, third. Number 5, and probable fourth. Once again, number 7, maximum security disqualified. After that Kentucky Derby schmazzle, Kentucky Chief State Steward Barbara Borden made a statement regarding the DQ of maximum security, but took no questions from reporters. And that's pretty much the way it is with all stick-and-ball sports, too. You never heard from the game officials after the controversial non-pass interference call in the NFC Championship game this year. You never heard from the game officials after the completely egregious hand pass that led to the San Jose Sharks' overtime goal in Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Playoffs' Western Conference Final. Officials don't speak to reporters and fans. I get that. However, as I watched that Kentucky Derby post-race press conference, I couldn't help but think that here was an opportunity for horse racing to give itself a much-needed dose of transparency had Barbara Borden taken questions from reporters. And furthermore, here's a sport where betting has been legal for a century. What happens when legalized wagering on the stick-and-ball sports matures, now that the path is there for it? If this DQ had happened in an NBA Finals game... What would the uproar have been? We're not here to rail about this bad call or that bad call. We want to talk about the process and whether there will be more accountability with the influx of legal gambling. And we have just the person to provide the perspective. He's Dave Tooley, ESPN alumnus, who now writes for the Vegas Sports and Information Network, VSIN. And Dave is nice enough to join us once again here on In The Gate. So Dave, with the rise of legal gambling, We're no longer just talking about adults playing kids' games, the outcome of which matter only within the closed ecosystems of those sports. Now we're talking about interstate commerce, etc., with far more legal gambling by the public. 
In your mind, how does the gambling dynamic affect accountability of the officials who help determine a game's outcome? And I would rather like to think that it doesn't matter that that the that all the individual sports should be doing their job and refereeing these games uh, with the ultimate uh, integrity. Uh, the, you know, they, all the leagues talk about these integrity fees they want to charge the casinos for taking the bets. But uh, I think the, the leagues are the ones that need to be transparent in, in these decisions and, and consistent. The, the fact that the people are gambling on it, again, people have been gambling on sports for as long as there's been sports. And, you know, the leagues are supposed, still supposed to be conducting themselves uh, in a sense of fair play. Well, I think the key word there is transparency. How much should gamblers demand transparency from leagues and or officials who could affect millions of dollars worth of betting transactions and payoffs? Um, I, I think that should be a, a very high priority. Like, like you said, you know, a lot of money is on the line. You know, everyone wants a fair game. And you know, most of all the bookies who are hurt the most when there, when there is a fix or a controversy or scandal of any kind, you know, the, the leagues should be make, making sure that the, you know, the games are fair and officiated correctly and, and clearly. I mean, obviously, we've had a number of cases recently where, you know, the rules aren't even all that clear on, you know, what's a, what's a catch and, <laughs> if, you know, what's possession of a, a reception, what is, uh, you know, if the goal line, if you have to, you know, withstand the fall to the ground or not, if you're running in. And, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of gray areas. But, yeah, I mean, you know, as gamblers were concerned as this, but I think, you know, just probably the story of the year has been uh, instant replays and reviews. I mean, all during March Madness, we had games that were dragging on and on because they were you know, checking every out-of-bounds call and, and stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue across all sports. Well, let's talk about horse racing in particular. I mean, given the bad press that the sport's gotten lately, how does racing compare to other sports when it comes to the need for transparency? Just as much as, as the other sports, the Kentucky Derby uh, disqualification being the, the main one that, that everyone's aware of. You know, it, it took 20 minutes for them to disqualify maximum security in the Derby. But you know, the fact that it, it dragged down so, so, so long and there wasn't a definitive decision is troubling. The rules should be clear. And the most frustrating part of, uh, of the decision was then, yeah, there was no recourse to, to find out, you know, a, a full explanation. And, and so again, that left a lot of people, you know, obviously with a bad taste in their, in their mouth. Um, you know, especially the, the betters that did have maximum security, you know, went from having a winning ticket to a losing ticket, you know, without really a, you know, a fair explanation. But we've said a couple times already now, yet transparency is very key. I mean, we have to hold these officials, whether they're racing officials or you know officials refereeing on a field, need to hold them accountable. And I understand there's there's human error and there's judgment calls, and you know we're never going to erase all of them completely. But still, I mean, fans and betters are owed. Uh, an explanation of you know exactly why the decisions were made. Well, now that we've established that, now I'm going to take the other side of it for a moment. How do you balance accountability and transparency with the potential bullying of officials by fans or media where officials second-guess or even change calls in the future? Because you surely don't want that to happen either. <laughs> That's a rather good point. 
again, you would hope that the people that are, you know, hired to do these jobs, and again, and these these are pretty prestigious jobs, you know, for people that get into these fields. Again, whether it's racetrack administration or, uh, you know, refereeing, you know, people that start with refereeing little league games or high school basketball games and move up the ladders. You know, they they want to be get these high highest levels in American sports. But with that does come with some responsibility, too. I mean, you, you can't just have uh, referees making decisions and then uh, yeah, just, just running rough and hiding. And unfortunately, we've seen that, again, across uh, several sports. One thing uh, we haven't even mentioned that a lot of people probably forget, you know, there's a couple college basketball games during the regular season that there, there was buzzer beaters that Im- impacted the, uh, the the point spreads. And the referees just said, oh, basket's good, and, and they just ran off. They didn't do any review or anything. And, of course, the NCAA finally was forced to come in later and say, oh, well, during the NCAA tournament, we're going to make sure that we you know, review any plays at the buzzer and, st- and stuff like that. But, you know, again, you got to have integrity, again, whether it's a uh, you know, non-conference game in the middle of the regular season or, or a tournament game. How do you do that? You obviously don't want to speak to officials themselves. Like we were saying, is it where the head of officiating has to be available to take questions? Or how would you do that? Um, I, I, I think the game officials should be accountable. And again, not after every game, but any any game where there's a, a controversial call, I, I think they should be available You know, in the post-game press conference, uh, just like the, the coaches and the players are held accountable and are required to, to appear. I mean, I, I guess if you, if the leagues wanted to add a buffer where there was a, more of a spokesman or referee czar that would uh, take questions like that, that would uh, at least be a compromise. Dave Tooley of the Vegas Sports and Information Network, VSIN, an ESPN Chalk alumnus, is with us here on In the Gate. I mentioned on a post-derby podcast that I remember watching ITV's broadcast of Royal Ascot two years ago, where there was an inquiry, and ITV had cameras and microphones in the stewards' room. When the jockeys came in, you could hear the Q&A with the stewards. That was fantastic. What would be involved, legally and politically, in making that happen both in racing and in stick-and-ball sports in this country? Yeah, as far as the legality, uh, that's above my pay grade. I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> I I I know what, what that would require. But, you know, I, I do remember seeing that, and it, and it was very encouraging. And actually, if, if anyone followed the uh, Alliance of American Football this past spring. Did anybody? I did. <laughs> but uh, when they went to replay, it, it, was, it was the same thing. They had a camera that showed the replay official watching the replays, and the replay official would, would even talk through it. And he would say, there's one foot down, there's two foot down, okay, and, okay, and then here's where he has possession of the ball, and they would walk through, and then he would get on the mic with the referee in the field and, you know, say, you know, this was a catch or not a catch. And it, it was very transparent. And so hopefully, back when the, when the XFL uh, came on board in 2001, you know, they were the first one to have the, uh, the, the camera suspended above the, above the field on cables. And then obviously we've seen the TV networks adapt that, uh, in pro and college football since then. Hopefully the uh, NFL and NCAA you know, see fit to, again, make, make it more transparent on the reviews. 
Now, horse racing is not exactly a progressive sport like the AAF was. <laughs> Change doesn't come very easily there. But with the sport very much on the defensive right now, do you think there is any appetite to provide greater transparency when it comes to officiating? Yeah, that's a really good question. I ask those. Yeah, <laughs> and, and obviously talking about the, tra- the tragedies of Santa Anita is foremost in my mind when, when taking this question. So, I mean, I'm, I, I know that horse racing is, is very protective of its uh, reputation at this time. It is a very tough time to be uh, you know, facing those kind of tough questions. In, in the end, is this all much ado about nothing, or is there any real conversation in the sports and gambling world about officials' accountability, particularly with so much betting money on the line legally these days? Well, I mean, they're definitely talking about it in the NFL because – Again, the interference, non-interference call was so huge. Horse racing, I think, will be you know slow to move it to to be more transparent. Basketball, again, will probably also I would think be be slow because uh, you know we still had very exciting uh, March Madness and Pro Playoffs here. It's certainly a subject that's not going away. How much it stays at the forefront of discussion is what remains to be seen. But thank you so much for the perspective, Mr. Tooley. It's good to hear your voice again. All right. Thanks a lot, Barry. Take care. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, are there too many tracks in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, and how can they all survive? We'll have some insight on that when we come back. Welcome back to In the Gate. There are currently seven thoroughbred racetracks in the mid-Atlantic part of the country. Parks in Penn National in Pennsylvania, Delaware Park, Laurel and Pimlico in Maryland, and the recently revived Colonial Downs in Virginia. If you were at one of them right now, the furthest you'd have to go to encounter another one in that group would be 150 miles from Laurel to Colonial. That's a lot of racing in a relatively tight area of the country. And with the exception of the Maryland tracks, which are both operated by the same group, of course, the others are all under competing ownership interests. Their race schedules often overlap, which has resulted this year in the cancellation of two of Delaware Park's first nine scheduled dates because they didn't have enough horses to fill their races. Might I remind you that in the last 30 years, the American thoroughbred foal crop has been cut in half from 45,000 to between 21 and 22,000, so there just aren't nearly as many horses to go around. The Mid-Atlantic problem here is nothing new. In 2010, the Maryland Jockey Club tried to reduce the state's live race dates to 40 for the year. Then Governor Martin O'Malley stepped in to put an end to that proposal. In 2019, Maryland has 187 dates. The issue of racing inventory, so to speak, is not going away. It's a national problem, with the Mid-Atlantic as a prime example. Where is this story likely headed? For some help with that, we welcome in reporter Brad Myers of DelawareOnline.com and the Wilmington News Journal. He joins us for the first time here on In the Gate. What does it say that Delaware Park had to cancel two of its first nine racing dates due to insufficient entries? Uh, Well, it says that they don't have enough horses right now. There are some reasons for that. They're not a year-round track. They only run from uh, May through October, so they rely on uh, southern tracks closing and shipping their horses up to 
Delaware for the summer months, and uh, that hasn't really happened yet. That's going to be happening soon. And then they also uh, have not opened the turf course yet, and they have a lot of horses that only run in turf races. And then they also have a lot of two-year-olds stable to Delaware Park. And uh, just because of the time of year, it's not really time yet to have two-year-old races yet. So when you take all of those things into consideration, they don't have a whole lot of horses who are eligible or ready to run right now that are stable to Delaware Park. Now, race states are somewhat controlled by the individual state governing bodies, Maryland, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware for the Mid-Atlantic, but the tracks are the ones applying for those dates. Have any of these operators thought that a defined circuit might benefit them all? You know, there has been talk of that, but it's just talk. You know, I mean, it's very hard, as you know, to get uh, all of these states and different track operators to work together. I think we all know that if they would work together, that they could improve the racing product at all of these tracks in the Mid-Atlantic. But it hasn't happened yet, and I don't think it ever will. They've done a couple small things here and there at the margins, but Delaware Park Actually, uh, their purses are a little bit lower now than they used to be, and they have cut their meat from about 140 days down to 81 days. But still, between them and Laurel and Parks and Pimlico and now Colonial Downs reopening down in Virginia, that's that's you know really part of the Maryland circuit. So that'll take horses away in the summer. And and uh, yeah, there's an awful lot of racing in the mid-Atlantic and, uh, you know, probably not enough horses for everybody. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. We're talking with Brad Myers of DelawareOnline.com here on In the Gate. Now, obviously, a track operator would want large fields. More betting interest means higher odds and more of a reason for bettors to wager on those races. But what about the horsemen? How do they feel about these competing dates, small fields, and low purses? You know, horsemen, I mean, they're competitive, and I don't think they really mind large fields, but just ask yourself, you know, what would be an easier race to win, a 12-horse field or a five- or six-horse field? I think it doesn't really bother the horsemen enough, that you know, to have short fields. And at Delaware Park, there's been a little bit of talk at different points about maybe shortening uh, their meet up to just like, let's say, 30 or 35 days like five or six weeks in the summer, kind of having a Saratoga-type meet and, and, you know, using concentrating all of their purse money into that where they could have a short meet, high purses. You know, if you did that, you would have full fields and really good racing for that short amount of time that you have it. But uh, the horsemen just won't agree with that. You know, they want uh, at least their 81 days because they want to move into a place and be there for a few months. It's more convenient for them. It's better for them. And so, you know, when a track is going to make out a a racing calendar and some dates, they do have a lot of different things that they have to take into consideration. Yeah, I mean, don't you think, at least from a track operator standpoint, that not necessarily something as short as Kentucky Downs, which is five days, but something that's really high-end becomes, especially for these casino-goers, like a, a unique less is more kind of a thing that you can get all dressed up like you do at Kentucky Downs for fancy races with big stakes and big time horses and less becomes more. 
Sure, I'm all for it. I think that would be a, a great idea. You know, I think a, a Delaware Park or, you know, even Laurel or any, any track in the Mid-Atlantic region, if they wanted to, uh, you know, if they have, let's say, X amount of purse dollars for the entire year, let's say they have, just to make up a number, $20 million, if you spread that over 80 days, you're going to have, you know, so much per day. But if you only spread it over 30 days, you're going to have a lot more, you know, and, and you're going to be able to run races with big purses and horsemen go where the money is, you know, and, and uh, back in the heyday of, of Delaware Park racing in the early 2000s, they had much higher purses than their competing tracks like Laurel and Parks. So they had a lot of full field. They had a ton of horses because horsemen brought their horses here, you know, because they they could run you know, the same level of race, they could run and earn almost twice as much money at Delaware Park. So now that none of them have exactly as much money as they used to, I think it would be a great idea if, if a track like Delaware Park would go to a short meet, but make it a really good meet. Can all of these tracks survive with competing for horses and betters and race dates? Well, yeah, I mean, I think they can all survive the racing product is not going to be, you know, probably what we all wish it would be. But, you know, they're all getting uh, significant money from casino gambling now. And so, uh, you know, all of them, their purses are, are pretty good. They're much better than they were, let's say, 20 years ago. And some of these, you know, the, all of the tracks that are um, connected with a casino, you know, the West Virginia tracks, parks, Penn National, Delaware Park, I mean, you know, they have all the incentive in the world to continue operating horse racing because that is the thing that, through their state governments, allows them to have those casinos. And, you know, they're never going to give up those casinos. That's where all of the money is. And let's not forget the dearly departed Atlantic City race course, which was still going strong when I started following racing back in the 80s and early 90s. So a lot of competition in a very short area of the country. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Myers. Hopefully, this can all be worked out and everybody can get a piece. Yeah, it really would be nice to see the quality of racing in in the Mid-Atlantic improve because there there are a lot of fans here and it would be nice to see things get better at all of the tracks. Our thanks to Brad Myers and to Dave Tooley. The NBA Finals were not shown live as late as the 1970s. They were seen late night on a few-hour tape delay. Then the bird and magic rivalry rejuvenated the league. Now household names are the stars of the NBA. Horse racing needs a shot in the arm after all the bad press it's gotten, with activists wringing their hands to shut down the sport. The best elixir? A rivalry starting with Maximum Security's DQ, then War of Will firing back with a retort. They won't meet next in the Belmont. Maximum Security will not run there, but the race after that, the Haskell on the Jersey Shore, could be a shot, not of the medication which plagues the industry, but excitement which could make your spirit soar. Would that be enough to quell the hounds outside the palace gates? They're out for blood. A rivalry's not enough. But the most this sport can do right now is to put its best foot forward. A rivalry is just that kind of stuff. 
You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.